from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and we're traveling across the border virtually for the show this weekend. As Canadian farmers map out their crop plans this year, there's also concerns about a carbon tax. Yes, I believe agriculture is definitely part of our uh, environmental solution. Despite those concerns, there's optimism about both demand and the growing season this year. The commodity markets prepare for a double dose of reports next week. One of them would be if we don't see the uh, increase in beans. What USDA may or may not say in the big report. As shipping prices rise, it's creating high farm good costs with no remedy in sight. And in John's world... Carbon taxes and Canadian farmers. Now for the news, USDA revamping and releasing information about those paused coronavirus assistance payments for farmers, with details on when those payments will start up again. USDA moving forward with $20 per acre payments for price-triggered crops that were outlined in the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. That was approved by Congress in December, but payments were paused when the new administration took office. We're told the payments will start going out in April. USDA also announcing a review in the program. It found some gaps in funding for some ag sectors, so it's announcing a new program, the USDA Pandemic Assistance for Producers. The plan is to get financial help to a broader set of producers, including socially disadvantaged communities, small and medium-sized producers, and farmers of less traditional crops, as well as provide support for producers of renewable fuels. USDA will reopen signups for CFAP2 for at least 60 days. That starts April 5th and for promotion and outreach to underserved producers. Well, there's problems at port. Agricultural exporters say they're having a nightmare of a time moving farm products through certain ports right now. A surge in cargo volumes, a reduced port workforce, and other problems have contributed to a shortage in shipping containers in California. Shippers trying to export California crops and commodities say they've experienced canceled bookings, increased costs, and concerns about lost business. And there's fear the problems may not ease for weeks or even months. What essentially happened, it was really precipitated by the pandemic, and, and, and that is people are still spending money, but the disproportionate amount of that money is going to the purchase of goods rather than services like restaurants and movie theaters and going on vacation. And so what's happened is it's created a surge in manufacturing, therefore a surge in transportation back to the United States in these steel containers. But it's not just contained in California. The Los Angeles Times are reporting that corporations of all sizes are reporting logistical issues, especially along the Trans-Pacific trade route. And as Steenook mentioned, the pinch at ports is adding to the surge in container shipping costs. Rising consumer demand and constrained supply of containers is causing disruption on the seas, which is now resulting in growing shipping costs. Check out this chart of the freight rate index. As you can see, rates started climbing last summer, but were amplified this winter. As a result, the price of shipping goods from North America to Asia that doubled. And S&P Global Platt's dry freight wire, it paints a similar picture. It shows shipping costs climbing in not just North America, but also South America. And one local supplier of ag products like silage wrap and net wraps, he says the added shipping costs of all goods are creating higher prices on a wide range of items. You know, I mean, we, we deal with a lot of, of farm supplies and agricultural parts as well. 
even if it's just not the, the material cost, shipping is absolutely outrageous. We're seeing shipping rates double, triple, even quadruple in some areas. That's just going to cause everything to skyrocket. Jones says the price of items made from plastics like bell wrap are also surging. That's due to tighter supplies and higher demand of polymer-based products. A new report from USDA shows pork supplies may be tighter than many people thought, shocking many analysts. The quarterly hogs and pigs report putting the U.S. inventory at 74.8 million head. That's down 2% from March of last year. Breeding inventory at 6.21 million head. That's down 3%. With hog producers intending to have just over 3 million sows farrow from now until May. That's 3% lower from the actual farrowing during the same period last year. Market analysts say the disappearing supply of pigs may be due to a reduction in numbers due to the impacts of COVID-19 in processing, as well as an increase in PERS in the U.S. Well, possibly coming next from the Biden administration, sweeping policy changes when it comes to infrastructure. The plan reportedly includes another $3 trillion in spending, but critics say of that money, not enough is being spent on infrastructure. The possible highlights include hundreds of billions of dollars for repairing the nation's roads, bridges, waterways, and rails, but also people-focused policies like free community college, pre-K education, and paid family leave. The spending would be partially offset by increasing taxes on companies and top earners. House Agriculture Committee Chairman David Scott says the centerpiece of the plan will be broadband internet. Also included in the plan are some of Biden's climate initiatives. Do we got to be smart and and develop rural broadband as a centerpiece to move out for rural development. Because if you don't have rural broadband there, you're not going to have the rural development that we need. Scott saying he and ranking member Glenn G.T. Thompson will hold a hearing to gather ideas for a bipartisan rural infrastructure bill. That will happen after Easter. Well, time may be running out for farms and ag businesses to apply for the Paycheck Protection Program. The Senate voting this week to extend the deadline to May 31st. PPP is part of the coronavirus stimulus plan that was created by the 2020 CARES Act. It provides businesses forgivable loans of up to $10 million, but loans are also given in smaller amounts as low as $1,000. A law firm that specializes in the program says the money can be used in a number of ways, including as income replacement, rent expenses or payments, utilities, interest payments, or even to help cover loans. I think it's important that the viewers understand that beyond payroll cost or wage cost, it can also be used for rent expenses such as uh, land rent, uh, equipment rent, it can be used for utility costs, and it also can be used for some supplier costs as well. So it's the use uh, and allowable uses is very flexible and really does, I think, uh, aim to help those in the agricultural community. Jellum says of the applications, only about 3% comprise of the ag community this year for PPP. You can read more about the PPP program and loan help at agweb.com. All right, that's it for the news. Heading into April, we'll try to get a grasp on the spring planting forecast with Mike Hoffman. That happens next. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, the recent rains seem to be helping the drought scenario in some areas. 
Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, you're absolutely right in some areas. In fact, the, the main area that the root zone is showing that, it's showing the wetter conditions now. Parts of South Dakota, Nebraska, down into Kansas. It's been wet for a while in Arkansas, northern Louisiana, western Great Lakes. But it is still very dry except for a few spots, even one there in the Four Corner region uh, in most of the west. And you can see that kind of extends across the, uh, the Gulf Coast area, North Dakota, and then also from Pennsylvania into the Northeast. As far as the drought monitor is concerned, there's what it is right now. Still very dry, obviously, for most areas of the uh, West, especially the Southwest, South Texas. Let's go back a month, though. There is actually more red on the map. This is what Tyne was talking about. We've uh, actually in, or seen a slight decrease in places over the past four weeks, and uh, we'll see if that trend continues or not. I'm not overly hopeful, as you'll see in the 90-day uh, forecast. Here's my, uh, or the jet stream, as we start the uh, week through the weekend and into the week, you can see a, a quick trough moving through the uh, Great Lakes in the northeast. This is a pretty good storm system coming for the middle of the week. A lot of the energies to the north. That brings a shot of colder air that comes into the Great Lakes in the northeast to end the week, and that may kind of continue if this model is correct there with that trough lingering over eastern Canada. Let's go day by day. On Monday then, scattered showers and maybe some thunder showers. Florida on over into parts of Texas. Storm system with some cold air behind this. Uh, lots of snowflakes on the map there. Lingering snow in the northeast and eastern Canada. By Wednesday then, uh, the main cold front is uh, sweeping across the uh, Great Lakes into the southern plains. Cold air behind it. Some snow that may end any, anyway. The rain may end as snow in places in the Great Lakes. And then you can see by Friday, not a lot going on. Lots of high pressure, lingering snow in the northeast, a little bit of rain and snow in western Canada. Otherwise, chilly to cold in the east and uh, pretty mild out west. Here are the April temperature forecast above normal for much of the country except parts of the southeast and that below normal area in the northwest. Going on to May, I'm going for a much above normal area there in the southwest, uh, including eastern Colorado, and then that continues as we head through June. Much of the country looking pretty warm for the early part of the summer. Below average precipitation, much of the west down into the southern Mississippi, Great Lakes, Ohio Valley, northeast probably above normal over the next 90 days. Tyne? Thanks, Mike. Well, the markets were fairly quiet this week. We will try to explain why as we head north for the March Classic with the Grain Farmers of Ontario. That's next. U.S. Farm Report from the 2021 March Classic is brought to you by Grain Farmers of Ontario. Building innovative, sustainable grain farms across Ontario, Canada. Well, a big thank you to the Grain Farmers of Ontario for having us at their March Classic this week. So we're adding some Canadian flavor to our roundtables. Philip Shaw joining us this weekend, as well as Dan Huber and Darren Newsome. Uh, you know, Darren, I'll start with you. When you look at these markets, I know it was a fairly quiet week, but what do you feel like the markets were telling us this week ahead of next week's big USDA reports? You know, phrasing it, phrasing the question that way, um, 
you know, it makes us go out and look at the, at the new crop spreads. And, and what we've seen is the DeSmarch corn spread leaking a little oil in here, working a little bit lower, testing some support, while the new crop uh, November, January soybean spread, can, you know, staying pretty strong. So, you know, overall, what this is telling us is the commercial side may be getting a little bit more comfortable as we head towards planting season, possibly the idea that we could see you know, maybe more corn acres than expected because early on, you know, we were thinking that soybeans might be trying to buy some acres away. Uh, but the spreads are certainly indicating corn maybe maybe holding on to most of its acres, possibly increasing again. Soybeans aren't likely to get all they're going to need to rebuild supplies. You know, Dan, when we go in next week and this planting intentions report, I mean, we can mm -hmm. always see surprises. But we're expecting a record number of acres this year. So what could what surprise could we see from USDA next week, possibly? Well, of course, one of them would be if we don't see the uh, increase in beans, as we would uh, we would hope to. You know, again, they gave us 90 million acres on their uh, baseline projections here a month ago. But, uh, you know, realistically, we need to see higher acreage than that. You know, is has the cotton market rallied enough to uh, keep us from pulling acres away from cotton? So it's, uh, you know, I, I really think it's, you know, the market is kind of geared up to to see big numbers in both. You know, again, that 92 million on corn, I think, hopefully will be the uh, the lower end of it. But I think people are tending to want to favor with corn as far as planting the spring. So, you know, probably the biggest question in the, uh, and particularly when you look at the how, how dire the, uh, or how tight the ending stocks projections are in the soybean market, you know, we're going to need to see higher acres than, than 88 million of beans to, to feel at all comfortable as we move into the summer months. Yeah, Phil, you know, we know that it's an, an intense battle right now for acres, acres here in the U.S. It is the same in Canada. So what is the sentiment right now in Canada as far as acres go when we know that battle is happening north of the border as well? Yeah, I deal mostly with eastern Canada, certainly in western Canada. Canola uh, is certainly a favorite now, but but they all are. But canola is is really hot. But keep in mind in, in Ontario, uh, you know, you're our competitor, too, and we do import a lot of American corn from time to time, uh, but our acres are more finite than your acres. Most most Ontario farmers, most Canadian farmers are fixated on how many acres uh, our American friends will, will grow this year. Uh, because, you know, you, you get in the more northern and eastern areas of Ontario and Quebec, and you only go a couple hours north of that or even an hour north of that, and you really can't grow grain or grain corn effectively because, because it's just too cold. And uh, so, you know, I'm expecting, and our numbers are much lower than yours, of course, I'm expecting about 2.1 million acres of corn and 3 million acres of soybeans. And those numbers really don't, they, they, they juggle around, but they really don't change as much on, on uh, the price gyrations of the market, simply because we have a finite number of acres that you can have in cultivation here in Ontario and in Quebec. You know, Darren, there were some early private estimates that came out, and some just this week, some that possibly suggested we could see less than 89 million acres of soybean acres this year. If that's the case, we already have tight balance sheet. What, what would that do to the dynamics? Well, that's going to, that's going to keep our market fundamentally bullish, you know, through the next marketing year as well. Uh, and certainly again, seems to be what the market's telling us is that regardless of what's out there right now, it's, it's bullish out through the 2021, 22 marketing year, but that, you know, that's, that's certainly going to like, you know, increase the fire underneath this already hot market. So uh, we have to remember, these are just a perspective 
number. I mean, this isn't the end number. This isn't the, the end all and be all. This is just one of the opening salvos and a guess. Uh, you know, the market will probably pay attention to it for about five, 10 seconds, and then it's going to go on, turn its attention back to, to, uh, to weather and, and the reality of what's actually going to get planted. Yeah, and it's not just acres that we're going to get a look at next week. We're also possibly going to get an updated look at demand. And so we'll talk about that with our analysts later on U.S. Farm Report. Farmers in Canada are facing a carbon tax, but what is it and what does it mean? John Phipps joins us now for John's World. Canadian farmers are understandably upset with the new carbon tax, which will primarily be tacked on to fossil fuels like gasoline and natural gas in a classic economic tactic to lower consumption and emissions. The strongest pushback has been the scheduled carbon tax increases over the next few years, which would be most expensive for grain drying. The intensity of the farmer reaction, however, strikes me as disproportionate. First of all, this is not an enormous hit. According to one University of Saskatchewan ag economist, even by 2030, when the carbon taxes rises from the current $40 a ton to $170 a ton, it represents about 5% of wheat break-even expenses. Second, like all Canadians, farmers get a rebate, about $1,000 per household in Saskatchewan this year. Third, it would be shocking for any group not to object to any tax imposed on them. Fourth, Western provinces, especially Alberta, have seen dreams of windfall profits from oil sands shattered by fracking competition. Carbon tax is the last thing that industry needs. Finally, this is a political as well as an economic issue. The Conservative Party, which includes many farmers, last week, under pressure from Western provinces, voted down a resolution to merely recognize the reality of climate change. This is curious to me because while in the long run nobody really benefits from global warming, Canadian agriculture has come pretty close. Notice what's happened to the growing season length in the last four decades. This map now has a lot of detail, but just notice how the brown area has expanded in that time. As a result of warmer and wetter climate, Canada has become a serious competitor in crops they could not grow before. Here's a chart of Manitoba soybean production, which was an oxymoron when I started farming in 75. Heck, I remember people laughing when we added North Dakota to the Corn Growers Association. Maybe Canadian farmers feel uh, too much downside to climate change, so denial is appealing. Regardless, Canada is doing the heavy lifting for other nations to test what works and doesn't to manage carbon emissions. For that, and for being the best neighbor our country could have, we owe them a debt of thanks. Well, that carbon tax is creating growing concerns for some Canadian farmers. We'll tell you more about it in our Farm Journal report coming up. But first, Machinery Pete, he has this week's Tractor Tales. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're in my neck of the woods, and we're gonna check out a classic Farmall H from Minnesota. It's a 1946 Farmall H. Um, I did it for a 4-H project back in 1999. We bought it from a family friend. He used it on his farm. He got it. The third or the fourth gear was bad in it. He had to refix that, 
Um, we sandblasted all the sheet metal, repainted it all, and then I took it up for a state fair. We do use it around here on a daily basis, just for pulling on trailers, hay racks. At the local farm show, we do the exhibition farm plowing with it. We did all of the work here at the home place. Um, we just got a little shop, we worked in it. We fixed it up back in December. We started on it, well actually back in usually like November, we started on it. Worked on it all the way through until March. When we did the painting on it, the humidity wasn't a big factor. Yeah, um, the paint adhered real well to it then. And then you're indoors for the winter too, you know, so you're not that cold. Just for the fact that it was a 4-H project, Yep, it's uh, probably one of my, my favorite ones, so yep, out of well, only six tractors, so. Well, coming up, John mentioned the carbon tax, but it's not just the carbon tax on Canadian farmers' minds. So as farmers in Ontario prepare to plant, we'll show you some growth opportunities many face. And that's our Farm Journal Report coming up next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, this weekend we're north of the border for the March Classic with Grain Farmers of Ontario. And Canadian farmers are facing some of the same opportunities and challenges as farmers here in the U.S. That's this week's Farm Journal Report. For farmers in Ontario, Canada, things are looking up. There's a little more certainty in the pricing market. We've We've actually got some beans uh, booked for fall delivery already. Growing optimism as better prices are planting a better outlook as the demand game stays strong. We also have a very strong food market. And so we're working on all those areas to uh, ensure that uh, the grain that farmers grow can go into those domestic markets and continue to grow those. Crosby Devitt is the CEO of Grain Farmers of Ontario. He says livestock and ethanol markets are big demand drivers for area farmers, but so are exports. Depending on the grains, for example, soybeans, we've got a very strong identity preserved program into the food markets around the world for soybeans. And, and that's one particularly as a high value market and something that we really put a lot of emphasis on continuing to keep those markets but also to grow those and increase the reputation of Canadian grains all around the world. Bernie, who farms just 20 miles from Detroit, is one of those farmers on the receiving end of that growing demand. And he says it's all about finding what works for his farm. We grew identity preserved beans for a long time and we're heading into tofu production in, in Japan uh, for years and years. That relationship with Japan has strengthened even more. Canada joined the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP. It's a trade pact that took the place of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and one that now represents 13 13.5% of the global merchandise trade. If you look at the value added side and, and uh, Japan, for example, is, is, an, is a country that we have, you know, a decades long relationship in, in selling high quality soybeans. And that's certainly one that is of critical focus uh, now and in the future. We have a very good relationship with uh, Japan and they sought out uh, Canadian growers and Ontario specifically. So there was always uh, a lot of, uh, Going into spring intentions, there were a lot of different beans that would go around the, the scenes trying to see who would grow what uh, for that export market. And it was key to developing some of the uh, some of the additional pieces to our Ontario soybean market. 
Founder of Canada's Real Ag Radio, Sean Haney, says CPTPP has paid dividends for Canadian agriculture. And now there's talk the U.S. may want to join. I think that's that's the major point is trying to hold China accountable and try to bring them in line with things that they have you know, agreed to in, in terms of uh, being members of the WTO. And we, we're also seeing com- countries like the U.K., talking about joining the CPTPP as well. Devitt says while the U.S. is an important trading partner, at times it can be a competitor. However, he says the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement has been good for agriculture. Fundamentally, the new agreements haven't tra- changed the trade of grain. Um, but any time that you can have uh, multilateral trade agreements, open markets, um, more access to markets, it's better. As Canada works to continue to grow demand abroad, farmers are also working to connect with consumers at home. I think that the more that we can do to make sure that the general public trusts the, the science that we're using behind what we're growing, uh, the way that we're, we're farming on our farms, uh, they, we can dismiss some of the practices from, from past. That public trust is coming into light as Canada is starting some aggressive climate initiatives. I believe agriculture is definitely part of our uh, environmental solution. Um, you know, when we look at Ontario farming and, and Ontario as a province, um, we've got over 14 million people calling Ontario home. Uh, and a lot of our farmers are farming very close to a lot of large communities. And so, as you can imagine, there's scrutiny on that. Scrutiny that's now creating a challenge for farmers. I think one of the biggest challenges I see as a farmer is kind of that disconnect between some of the regulations that are maybe coming down on the farm and an understanding at a farm level of how these these changes will affect the farm. Just like the U.S., Canada is working on creating carbon markets for farmers, but the details are still murky. Both Canada and the U.S. are creating these carbon economies for farmers in, in, in parallel. There's one main difference, though, and that is Canada has really brought out a lot of programming with more of the stick approach. Haney says that stick approach starts with the carbon tax. Carbon tax, that, that is the stick. Right. That, that's, that is really what has been a major, major component of most of the climate-oriented discussions the past few years. It started out at $25 a ton. The government announced back in December they're planning to increase it to $170 a ton by 2030. Haney says that tax is applied to things farmers can't control. It's not like you can get a solar power or an electric grain dryer to dry your corn or your wheat you need to burn propane, natural gas. And and so farmers are incurring that cost. If it moves to $170 without exemptions. Despite the pushback from some farmers in Canada, Grain Farmers of Ontario says Canadian farmers have a powerful story to share. We've got good data to show that uh, farmers are continuing to improve water quality uh, in our practices, whether that's conservation tillage, whether that's for our nutrient management, those types of things. A story in numbers for farmers still making acreage decisions for the new year as 2021 is bringing both hope and fresh optimism for the spring season. Well, we'll continue our discussion from Grain Farmers of Ontario, March Classic. Philip Shaw, Darren Newsom, and Dan Huber, they join me to talk markets again next. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. U.S. Farm Report from the 2021 March Classic is brought to you by Grain Farmers of Ontario, building innovative, sustainable grain farms across Ontario, Canada. 
Welcome back. Well, Philip Shaw, Darren Newsom, Dan Huber joining me this weekend. Dan, we mentioned it in our last roundtable, but it's not just acres that we're going to get a look at next week from USDA. We're also possibly going to get an updated look at demand. Do you think USDA's hand is forced to increase uh, China's imports right now? You know, they may bump the, uh, the corn import number a little bit. I, I don't really, you know, but again, we when you look at the sales that are on the books here, I mean, they uh, they have potential to do that. But, you know, and again, we've got a lot left in the season. We have a lot of unshipped bushels of corn out there. I, I think they're probably, China's probably going to take, you know, what they have in the books. If that really increases a lot from where it is, I, I think it's pretty debatable. When it comes to the beans, I think they've got that pretty well factored in. And if anything, you know, we might start seeing a little more of the business shift down to South America. So I, I don't see them doing that in the beans at this point in time. And I don't think they've got wiggle room to really do that uh, without seeing some kind of a major issue happen, happen in South America, which is that's getting a little late in the ballgame for that to happen. The bigger question, I think, is, you know, have we overstated uh, because of the resurgence of the uh, African swine fever in China? Is that going to be a big enough deal to uh, start turning back on some of those demand estimates? Yeah, Philip, I mean, do you have serious demand concerns when it comes to China, considering we are hearing more talk about ASF? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, I, the other guys have probably heard me say this before, but the view from Asia is different. And when I go to Asia quite a bit and and you just feel the huge effect that the Chinese economy has in that part of the world. And generally speaking, Chinese demand is, you know, a very, very good thing for farmers, whether you're an American farmer or or a Canadian farmer, you know, but there are issues, you know, I mean, we, we had the Biden administration recently and the Canadian Trudeau administration uh, simultaneous put a few sanctions personally on Chinese officials. And, and you know, the relationship with China is still rocky. I know in Canada, we, we have real problems with two Canadian citizens being in jail over there based on a tit for tat uh, problem we have with uh, Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive in jail in Vancouver because of an American extradition order. So there's these other issues that they could spring up and it could be a black swan that there might be a problem uh, between the, the American administration and the Chinese or, you know, in Canada, we don't have that much of an effect. So yes, Chinese demand is very important, but we all have to realize it's a very good thing for us, but there are other issues that could spring up and could certainly throw a wrench into a wrench into that that cog uh, coming up. So we'll just have to see what happens. Hopefully things will go the way they've gone and things will just keep growing. But there are issues over there and we have to think about that. Yeah, Darren, speaking of those issues, do you think it's enough to poke holes in this market and make this demand story fall out? Or even, even if we do see some of those issues, do you think there's enough to, to support prices here as we head into summer? Uh, I think if we if we do start seeing some of these trade issues flare up again and, you know, we get to where, you know, we're going back and forth, possibly with tariffs, possibly with fights, you know, whatever what might be said, whatever might be done. I, I think I think it could be enough to deflate this balloon somewhat. Yes, we have an extremely tight situation and so it means possibly record tight. You know, it's going to be a, a challenge to the 2013-14 marketing year. But if all of a sudden we do start letting some of the air out of this uh, of the demand side of the equation, that, that could cause a problem long term. It'll certainly show up in the market itself. Uh, and then we'll have to wait and see. Right now, basis is incredibly strong. So we're not seeing any signs of a balloon popping, uh, but it could certainly happen at any time. 
You know, um, Dan, Darren had mentioned weather and how the market market is going to focus on weather here. You know, we had it, it's kind of gotten wetter in the Midwest. Is that going to last? But now we're hearing maybe it's going to be milder, turn drier. If we get this crop planted at a really good pace, do you think that's enough to really put pressure on prices? Or because we are so tight, even if we have an amazing planting season this year, do you think this still can have some support? You know, I, I think undoubtedly if we have a, a good growing season, it would let some of the air out of the balloon. It wouldn't completely deflate it, though. You know, again, we, we just have to get these inventories built back up, which is not going to happen in one year. It's going to take a couple year period to make that happen. So it's uh, so, yes, I mean, great weather moving forward. Not that we don't normally find some kind of weather scare sometime or another throughout the growing season. But unless there is a major issue out there, yes, I think it deflates the air, uh, but certainly does not. Uh, does not empty empty it completely out of the balloon. I, mean, I think now one of the other problems, again, we've talked about it earlier this week, that you know that could be creating headwinds for uh, moving forward is we've continued to see the U.S. dollar creep higher and higher. We moved in new highs for the year this week, and I think you know that's that's an unaddressed issue that that could start uh, uh, creating a little issue with at least trying to move prices higher. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to move them lower, but you know, it, it creates a wall that uh, doesn't allow prices to really move much higher than they are currently. All right. Well, we are out of time. Philip, thank you so much for bringing that perspective north of the border to our roundtables this weekend. We really appreciate it. Darren, Dan, thank you so much. We'll be keeping an eye on, on next week's reports. All right. Stay with us. We have much more to come right here on U.S. Farm Report after the break. Well, we are at the height of March Madness, and as excitement builds on who will make the Final Four, who would have guessed that an Illinois farmer had an important role in creating one of the most exciting aspects of the game, the slam dunk? Our friends at FarmWeekNow.com have the amazing story behind the invention that literally changed the game. My father was raised farming with his family uh, when he was growing up. As time went on, he you know, got into the elevator business, was a manager for quite a few years, but he was raised as a farmer. March Madness, every year Dad was so, so excited. He would watch all the basketball um, going from high school to college. He would try to even go to some of the games if he could or had tickets to it. Him and Mom he, um, would just pack the car up and go for a weekend sometimes and go. I was the assistant basketball coach at St. Louis University. I graduated from there in 66, and uh, we used to have open gyms then in, in summer, and uh, guys liked to dunk. It came an age, really dunking didn't really start until kind of the early 70s, where everybody in open gym wanted to dunk, uh, even as they warmed up and hang on the rim. And of course, they would, heavy guys would bend the rims, and then uh, being the assistant coach at St. Louis U, there wasn't a maintenance person at night to take care of that so by the next morning I had to get out the ladder and the wrenches and put on a different rim because we couldn't bend those those things aren't easily bent back in shape. It was Art's idea. He said that just that's just not quite it, it shouldn't be that way in today. So he said we, we, we all try to figure out some way to make that better. And uh, you know he said well we, we've found this spring that we've put in this and uh, you know, I'm bring you down one and bring you down a couple. Actually, he brought me, he, he probably brought me, it seemed like about three or four. And he said, 
try to put these on in places where guys are playing in gyms and see what their coaches think. The initial report from most of the coaches was the players, the players didn't like them. They, they were too loose. You know, I reported back to Art and he said, well, you know, we got to get a stronger, a stronger spring than we had. It's, you know, uh, something that, that takes all that play out of the rim. We cut a lot of springs up and ground them to get them the right length, we thought. That was, that's where we spent all the time. But these springs and that bolt to it finally got to be the, the one that he worked on. The big thing that happened then was once coaches realized they don't bend, players have less injuries, and the backboards don't break, uh, it got to be a pretty popular idea. Uh, and of course, manufacturers were, were going ahead and, and producing them. Art spent a lot of time now, after it was built, hauling that around to get that patent. And then, I didn't know it, but you have to protect your own patent. It was a great run for Art. We had a lot of fun, a lot of conversations calling me about, did I see this rim? And how did this coach react and, and this react? And then what in the stores, who was selling pull down rims? What brands? <laughs> So it was a long, a long process, but uh, he uh, he pulled it off. Farmers, as a rule, are they they got to think outside the box, and he was one of those guys that could do that and had a lot of good ideas. He really did. Great guy, great guy. My father is an amazing man. He really is amazing, and so it's interesting for a normal person to do something that really made a difference in sports. Best slam dunk is all because of my dad. A game changer. What a neat story. Thanks again to our friends at farmweeknow.com. Well, from one Illinois farmer to another, John Phipps joins us next. Crowdfunding farmland. Good idea or not? Well, has the competition for land changed? Here's John Phipps. Well, the world seems to be in an investment frenzy, and it includes farmland. I have recently been considering investing in farmland through one of the farmland crowdfunding platforms. There are at least three now in which you can invest anywhere from 10,000 to hundreds of thousands of dollars. This allows you to own shares in a working farm. My wife asked me what effect this is having on individual farmers and I could not answer her. Does your magazine have an opinion as to whether this type of investing is helping or hurting farmers across the country. Is it helping farmers stay on the farm or is it driving up prices for farmland? And that's from J.M. in Minnesota, Wisconsin. Now, I'm withholding his name for obvious reasons, but any discussion about farmland needs to start with some basic facts. For example, using information from this excellent ERS report, we can see that despite a wide range of economic and political conditions, Farmers have owned about 60% of all the farmland in the U.S. for nearly a century. There are many factors, but my takeaway is the farmland ownership profile is really stable, so the current investment interest probably won't move that needle much. I was uh, surprised to discover how many new investment vehicles for farmland are popping up. Now, these are just a few that I found, and certainly not an endorsement. Like that now over-publicized 270,000-acre farmland purchased by Bill Gates, always compare to the enormous amount of farmland we have in the U.S., around 900 million acres. 
In addition, farmland turnover is about 4% annually, and much of that is between family members. With those factors, I just can't see farmland turning into Tesla or even GameStop. Does this help or hurt farmers? Well, the reliable answer is, it depends. For those who own land now, it's certainly a boost to their net worth, but I always compare it to a valuable necklace handed down through generations on Antique Roadshow. Even if it has skyrocketed in appraised value, does it matter if you'd never sell it? Higher prices from new buyers like investment companies do make ownership even more difficult for beginning farmers. But that has been the case since the last land grants ended. I have no idea what the net effect of this investment fad on farmer well-being will be, but I believe it to be small, case-specific, and relatively short-term. All right, when we come back, some farmers, they're hitting the field. We will have proof of it next. Well, last weekend, we welcomed the official start to spring. This week comes April, and you know what that means. Planting prep is going on. Planting prep and even planting this season is already underway for some folks. Wyatt in central South Dakota says with an open window for weather this week, he had a good week ahead of him for progress. Field work is also underway in Michigan. Robert Reese is in Lansing, Michigan, giving us a strong visual of the drought conditions in the central part of the state. All of Michigan is covered in some level of drought from abnormally dry to even moderate drought. I can't believe we're already talking about planting. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend. That's all the time that we have. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.